Hello and welcome to The Regrettable Century. This is Chris, and today we are diving into part two of The Enchantments of Mammon by Eugene McCarraher. We're collaborating once again with our network comrades at the Red Library. And before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that we have a Patreon. It's only $2 and you get access to our irregularly posted content, our Discord server, which includes discussions on pretty much anything you can think of, and our upcoming patron-only roundtables and reading groups. Also, make sure to check out Red Library and From78, both of whom are on Twitter and are easy to find using your favorite podcatching apps. You can also look out for our network collaboration podcast. Well, here we are still, after all. Okay, enjoy the show. All right, well, let's, uh, okay. let's officially let's kick this off. So, let's go. Enchantments of Mammon Part 2, Lost Horizons Time, Red Library, The Regrettable Century Time. All right, so do we want to quickly go around, just say who's all on? Because, again, we're going to have sort of rotating characters on this series. So I'm Comrade Adam. This is CC Don. I'm Chris. I'm Jason. And uh, we we used to have a guy on the podcast named Kevin. (laughs) who uh, I don't know what happened to him. I think he got abducted by aliens or something, but he's not here this week. R.I.P. Kevin. God rest his soul. Yeah, yep. you will be missed. You will be missed, Comrade Kevin. We'll pour one out for you along the way. <laughs> what happened was he was crying while listening to Dashboard Confessional, and he drove off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's that's y'all's show's drama. We're not going to comment on that. I'm just, but I'm leaving all of that in. <laughs> he's going to be mad at me. <laughs> he's going <laughs> to. The best part is the thing he's going to be mad about is that you said he listens to Dashboard Confessional. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whatever, some other crying wuss band. <laughs> like like Satyricon. <laughs> Do you like Satyricon? I don't like Satyricon. No, I'm just... <laughs> All right. It's not everything can be gold, man. Come on. So you can edit that out. Edit Jason fucking flopping out. Of... <laughs> We're off to a real strong start here for part two. <laughs> All right, so I guess... Well, uh, yeah, before we, before we dive in, do you guys, since you guys are all on part one, do you guys have anything you want to cover from part one follow-ups? Ooh, um, nothing in particular. I will say uh, apparently the part one has made quite a splash. A lot of, uh, a lot of listeners over on, I think both of our shows are, are big fans of the content, so it's uh, good to see that we're, uh, we're kind of mining through this huge tome. So I don't know, what about yeah. y'all? Yeah, we've been getting a lot of good feedback about it as well. And um, I think that this is not a subject that most people most people on the left would, would ever even touch, mm-hmm. um, specifically because of its overtly spiritual and religious, you know, currents, uh, uh, undertones throughout the entire book. The, uh, it talks about the enchantment of nature in a positive way, which I think that uh, most most Marxists, most leftists would see as sort of anathema. So it's actually making people think about things that they don't necessarily ever want to think about. So I think it's good stuff. Jason, what do you got? Uh, nothing. He he loves doing this shit. He loves putting people on the spot. 
when they don't have anything to say. Oh, yeah. That's like my thing. It is. It's a weird, yeah, like unconscious tick that I have. Actually, I do have one thing that I want to throw out, and, and we can maybe just keep this very, very brief. Uh, but I feel like some of the discussions that have been going on, um, going on post us doing part one, I think, did bring up an interesting question about is focusing on this gothic, romantic, warm strain in Marxism, this sort of religious, spiritual undercurrent, what about this is different than the standard, like, idealist perspective on radical and revolutionary policies versus a materialist one? Because I feel like some of the, I know we had a conversation about this, but the idea that focusing on this particular perspective is is sort of falling back into idealism. And I think from the dialectical pessimist kind of perspective, I feel like we're all pretty clearly saying like, it's it's something different than that. Yeah, I I think that choosing to um, acknowledge our humanity isn't falling back into idealism, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's, that that's what we're doing here, you know? And I think that we're, what we're doing is getting at something that is a deep part of the human psyche that is pretty much ignored by a majority of the left and has real material consequences. And I think that what a lot of people on the left would have us do is just ignore uh, this part of what it is that makes us human and uh, leave that to the fascists to completely and wholly own something that is very, very relatable uh, on, on a very deep level to a lot of people. And I'm not really willing to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think that like when we read about, you know, is in part two of this book, people like uh, people like Emerson and Thoreau and, uh, and Nat Turner actually and, the sort of romantic impulse to resist uh, the march of modernity in whatever form that it presented itself. There's a way of approaching it, which is to say like, that's a natural way to respond to things when you don't yet have a materialist conception of history, but we've moved beyond that. And for us, I think like it's, we're, I would, I would at least say that we're trying to reincorporate some of or rediscover some of the impulse. So when we talk about the romantic strain of, in Marxism, it's not a grafting on of a pre-Marxist anti-capitalism or radicalism, but it is carrying on in the lineage of that essentially human impulse to resist all that is inhuman in the, you know, in the organization of the present society. Yeah, here, here. I'd agree with that. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so I guess, uh, CC Don, you're in the the driver's seat okay. for part two. So I think you're going to principally be leading us through, but then we'll be just have an open discussion along the way. Questions, comments. So where do you want to start? Cool. Um, I'm just going to give a brief overview of what part two covers. So it's going to cover America from the uh, early 1500s to the late 1800s. We're going to move from the Puritans uh, to the Great Awakening and the Evangelicals. Boo. <laughs> Boo. Drag them. <laughs> To the uh, romantics and transcendentalists, uh, through Woo! people like Thoreau, Whitman, and Emerson, and uh, a little bit of a spoiler alert, they will all adopt a, pe- a pecuniary logic, um, and the idea that success in the marketplace is the sign of spiritual virtue. Also, boo. Yeah. So, yeah, dude. It's it's almost like that just indulging in any of that, like, you know, Puritanism is like a fucking disease that just grows in you. <laughs> <laughs> like a goddamn xenomorph. <laughs> yep. That, that's my idealist take on uh, 
the the germ of just puritanism that infects you all right well let's uh, get started on chapter four then fuck yeah let's roll so uh, that'll be the where he covers uh, the puritans mostly um and he mm-hmm. wants to talk about and says the first generation or two had a bit of an ambivalence or an inversion to market morality but uh, that faded rather quickly and the idea of a social gospel uh, of like love through commerce uh, eventually gets degraded and he kind of makes a comparison between uh, a character named Robert Keane, uh, who was mm-hmm. uh, criticized and brought to court by John Cotton and Winthrop for violating the, quote, bonds of reciprocal love and for following mar- market logic too closely. Um, and then McCare Hare is going to say that uh, basically in the future, the Puritans are going to follow this uh, Keane much more than he's, they're going to follow uh, Cotton or Winthrop's um, ideas. And the gospel uh, later, so this is um, after they've kind of moved past that first generation, that the gospel is seen to uh, bring both uh, eternal salvation, but also uh, riches and protection from enemies. Um, And these enemies could uh, also be understood in spiritual terms that we're going to get to in a second. So I don't know if you guys... Yeah, that's uh, an interesting, you know, break from a logic of... Christianity being a uh, a religion of the downtrodden and the oppressed who can really only expect persecution by becoming a Christian because, you know, the world is against them and their only true reward is in heaven. To go from that, to go from the, to uh, what the Puritans are preaching, uh, takes this gigantic leap that... Uh, well, I guess it's not much of a leap. It's, you know, as we've seen so far in this book and that we're seeing now in the Puritan era, it's like slowly compounding on itself. It's just bad theology uh, just getting worse and worse and worse and changing to fit the necessities of the economy as it's developing. The theology evolves to become the econo- the theology of the economy that is necessary for its furtherance along the road that it's going. Yeah, like one one of the things that was running through my mind and has been continually in reading this book is uh, the injunction in, I, I couldn't remember where it was, I had to look it up, but it's the injunction in the in First John to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. And I just think, how did y'all miss that for like hundreds <laughs> of years? <laughs> well, not, not to do like some liberal gotcha stuff like, Oh, he's not even a real billionaire because he won't show his taxes, right? But like, <laughs> there is something that it's kind of like self-satisfying and being able to just like, oh, I remember the Bible, and without having to try at all, just like there are so ma- there is so much uh, preaching against uh, the Puritan prosperity gospel in embryo that this whole chapter deals with, or this whole section of the book deals with. Yeah, I mean, even Jesus's teaching has talked much more about money than it ever did about sexuality in terms of evil um, or the negative effects. So it's always weird. Right. That. It's easier for the rich man to go through the, uh, I mean, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to get into heaven. Yeah. That's a, that's one or like, woe to you rich mm-hmm. uh, for you will receive no, receive no reward in heaven for you already have received your reward here. That kind of a thing. Yeah. And that's, Jesus mentions the rich all like a bunch and how uh, they suck and yeah. <laughs> they're not going to heaven. But, you know, he actually never really mentions anything about like sexuality at all. Yeah. It takes Paul to talk about sexuality and the word that 
translates into homosexuality in our Bibles uh, just is a word for, uh, you know, having sex with children in Greek. So it's not even about homosexuality. Fun fact. Yeah. Yes, I am a better Christian than Thomas Morton. Thomas Morton yeah. sucks ass. I'm so. curious for really quick for for part two. I know we spent a lot of time reading quotes and talking about the sort of fiery writing style of McCarrie. Did y'all mm-hmm. feel like part two was as quotable? I felt like I didn't kind of get the. I mean, it's still very good and like very dense and very sharp. I didn't necessarily feel like there was as many things where I was just like, those are my drop moments, like every other paragraph. Uh, I mean, I, I had a hard time not just putting in a shitload of quotes when I was doing my notes. So, oh, okay. Um, it, it's not as quotable because it's not like, you know, the romantics. Yeah, that's <laughs> but fair. There's, that's there's fair. some good stuff in there, like by the transcendentalists. But, I mean, I did say, I just said that... Um, that Morton sucks ass, but I have to qualify that <laughs> because he hated the Puritans and he hated uh, like uh, Puritan pecuniary logic in a lot of his instances. But he was also like a uh, pretty mu- pretty dismissive of the fact that the United States was uh, already inhabited, or not the United States, the Americas are already inhabited by natives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought Morton's uh, story here was like a little bit too complicated to go through quickly, so I kind of skipped him. Um, but I thought he was, yeah. was really interesting. There's, like, I think that there's in this uh, section there's several characters that I thought were quite interesting and pretty complicated. So I kind of glossed over him a little bit just to keep things simple. But yeah, I think for, especially for this chapter, he was one of the more interesting people that I hadn't heard of. Yeah, before. he was for sure. I, I just I definitely uh, sympathize with him because I also hate the Puritans. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, when I said I was a better Christian than Thomas Morton, um, I was actually thinking, uh, this, that, that was me misspeaking, I was actually thinking of William Bradford, the one who called Thomas Morton the Lord of Misrule, <laughs> and okay. uh, was horrified by the mad Bacchanalians and their shameless debauchery. Uh, you, you actually I, are like Thomas Morton. I was gonna, yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, like uh, Morton, I think he's the first uh, figure mentioned in this part of the book that uh represents the kind of syncretism uh you know like they they still have a maypole and pagan sacramentals of various kinds that later is really delved into in a much deeper and more interesting way in the like you know african spiritualism mixing with with the christianity taught to the slaves like much later in the in the, Mm -hmm. in the two chapters from now but i think morton is the first example that uh the author presents of of that tendency to kind of like I don't know engage in in a sort of Christian salvage project and find like the best of all the various religious pra- practices. Thomas Morton actually turns out to be somebody who I, I might want to know a lot more about just because it's I'd never heard of him before this book. Right, well, and yeah, it, he like speaks favorably of the Indians and he uh, talks shit about the Puritans. So like right off the bat, I already liked him, but then just his treatment of the Indians or sorry, the Native Americans, this, this book keeps calling them Indians, is uh, less than laudable. So he kind of loses it at the end there for me. Yeah, this is on page 114. It says, like the Puritan elect he despised, Morton attributed the destruction of the natives to the providence of the Almighty. Thanks to the, mm-hmm. quote, wondrous wisdom and love of God, unquote, the English would sweep away by heaps the savages, bearing the natives underneath the foundations of their godly city on a hill. So yeah, even though, you know, 
definitely hated those Puritans and that's laudable. Seems like he was definitely uh, still very much in favor of just mass genocide. Yeah, he saw the uh, the the New World as a plain parallel to the Canaan of Israel. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys know what happened to the Canaanites, but it was that they were all killed. Yeah, their walls fell down. Yeah. Yeah. Don, was there a Joshua. quote you wanted to read? Um, so actually, uh, speaking of the treatment of natives, I was, so from 118, this is going to be after um, to move from Morton to the Puritans to talk about, uh, here, I'll just read this from 118. It says, when they encountered the Native Americans cast in the role of the Canaanites in a grisly reenactment of biblical drama, the Puritans recoiled from the idolaters whose degenerate customs deserved the wrath of God. The Indians' failure to improve the land offended the saints as unnatural, wasteful, and abhorrent. Confronted with such prodigal iniquity, God's chosen had a right, in fact a duty, to evict the slothful, slothful inhabitants and put the land to profitable use. And then skipping a couple sentences. Well before Locke's justification of improving imperialism, Winthrop had sketched a theology of ethnic cleansing. Yeah. You know, I've always... I'm a big, big-time hater of Calvinism from way back, but, like, I really didn't know much about the Puritans because I, uh, I've always thought American history was less interesting than European history, which is what my major focus has always been on. So I didn't really get to know the ins and outs of how despicable hmm. the Puritans actually were. Yeah. Uh, especially when it came to their dealings with the Native Americans. I just assumed that just like all other English people, whenever they get around people with different skin color, they just start, you know, oppressing and killing and stuff like that. It's just, you know, it's inherent. It's an inherent trait of the English race, right? <laughs> Well, what's funny is the way that the way that early American history, uh, colonial history, is uh, is pre- is presented whenever you study it in like American schools, is that even whenever um, you know you have a curriculum that does teach the Trail of Tears, that's like a feature of post-revolutionary society. The westward expansion being like a consequence of industrial development and city life, and the need to like. This isn't the terms that you're taught it, right? But the implication is that, like, to, to sort of stave off class war, there's free land out west, and that's the right. reason why. Whereas the only the only thing you really hear about, like, the early settlers and the relationship to the relations with indigenous people is, you know, the English showed up and they couldn't farm, and the the native tribes helped them, and that was like, oh, it was pretty nice, whatever. And basically, you're taught that like it takes the revolution to reshuffle the relations between these two groups rather than uh, having the genocide, uh, genocidal wars across this continent over the course of like 150 years uh, actually goes back much further to the, the very moment that the English set foot on the, on the shores of modern-day Virginia. So I wanted to tag one quote here um, on 119. And to me, I thought this was a pretty crucial distinction of how the land was viewed by the English and the Puritans compared to, let's say, um, kind of some of these other perspectives that we've talked about of how like there's the shift to sort of this synchronism, like you said, between like this sort of capitalist commodification or sort of seeing the world as like the marketplace and the marketplace is sort of this divine thing and sort of relation to Locke's discussion about uh, like improving the land is kind of what what gave you the right to it. So uh, this is just very quick. He says, thanks to the Lord of hosts. Uh, this is McKeer here very sarcastically uh, just 
ripping apart, I think, John Winthrop Jr. and a few other folks. says, thanks to the Lord of Hosts, the land was a cornucopia of exchange value. And quote, and I think this is from a work uh, called Wonderworking, Providence of Science Savior in New England from 1654. Uh, the line is that everything in the country proved a staple commodity. So to me, that felt like a really core distinction as well is that now the land isn't just seen as like the land or it can't even be approved upon it's like everything now is a commodity everything now is something that like we have to then sort of like move into the marketplace so that line really stood out to me sort of prefigures the the way that everything would be commodified by capitalism necessarily yeah and i'm actually reminded of ellen uh mason's wood uh, some of her work on the origins of capitalism, how, I mean, at least in her analysis that capitalism, the real key moment is whenever like food production and agriculture is the primary thing that is being commodified and put onto the market. And essentially mm-hmm. it's whenever most of agriculture is commodified and captured by the market, that that in itself sort of like accelerates the commodification of all these other things. And so I guess to me, like seeing the land that way, um, you know, might have kind of like a resonance of things that were still also happening. I mean, a little bit, well, actually, no, kind of around that time. Chris, just remind, what, what era was enclosure of the commons? Are we talking like 1640s around there? The enclosure of the commons is really sort of finished up. I mean, not finished, like uh, it's a process that that lasts for, I don't know, like a century. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really just comes to a head i think probably in the 16 it starts in the it starts in the 14th century but like is really sort of done by the eight the 18th century okay yeah i was curious if there was just sort of a similar parallel there with like kind of starting to see the land as this again thing that has to be commodified and sectioned off for agricultural production right i mean it starts in the tudor era Mm -hmm. you know when capitalism becomes enough of a part of the defining features of English society that we start calling it the modern era as opposed to the, uh, you know, the medieval era. And that's, that's when there's the, the first set of enclosures happens. But then like, I don't know, I don't remember when like, there are several like waves of enclosure, which sort of culminate in the 17th century. Okay. So I would say that like the, the time that a lot of the literature is written is, and uh, the revolts against it happen is in the 1640s around the, the time of the English Civil War, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's even that the first enclosure acts are written in the 17th century. Even, But it's at this point, it's like to accelerate and codify a process mm. which has been underway for a while, like the way, like Chris said. But it, it becomes an identifiable, like, program of the ruling class in the 1600s with the yeah. first the first of a uh, numerous enclosure acts that are passed over the next couple of centuries. So real quick to finish up this chapter, um, he wants to, in addition to talking about both the uh, market logic that the Puritans are using and also the uh, proto-ethnic cleansing, um, there's also a little bit of a, on related to Winthrop and his like obsession with alchemy that uh, prefigures the uh, American obsession with technology um, and kind of proves part of McHarrier's point that this uh, disenchantment was not was not necessarily a thing that these people and he ends the chapter the entire chapter with talking about the fact that these people in general um, are not people we would see as being disenchanted Um, they had all sorts of beliefs in uh, magic and folklore 
that those type of beliefs were pretty pervasive and common across all of society. So just kind of him further criticizing this disenchantment idea found in Weber. Yeah, actually, I found that really fascinating for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, I wasn't aware um, of the pervasiveness of like folklore, folkloric kind of uh, witchcraft and magic and things that you, in in the sort of broad popular view of history, you imagine to be stamped out by around the the period immediately following the Salem witch trials. You just assume like, oh, people are pretty hostile to that stuff. But, you know, uh, her makes the the case pretty convincingly that this kind of like metaphysical culture um, that survives in the almanacs from the time. So you know we're like, who is it? Nathaniel Whitman uh, tells people to cut timber in the winter months, especially when the moon is in Pisces, because that's the best time to cut timber. <laughs> and um, I don't think he does it so explicitly, but there is a there's a way in which you can read this as making the argument that this kind of persistent uh, Enchant- enchanting of the world is uh, necessary or it's even it's like it's the reason why there is the sort of magical belief in the power of money because it's rooted in pre-capitalist modes of thinking about all sorts of things and mm. so it's not even just that like money and the power of money gets enchanted along the way it's that it, it's introduced into a world which is still largely informed by an essentially magical worldview. So it's, it's the it's the last of the old and the first of the new. Like money is the is the transition between the two uh, between these two worlds. It's interesting to me that in all of this that he never mentions uh, any of the fraternal societies like the Freemasons or the uh, the Odd Fellows or anything, because mm-hmm. with the removal of Catholic ritual comes the you know explosion of people being drawn to things like the Freemasons and other fraternal societies where they uh, engage in hermeticism and, you know, uh, utilize alchemical symbolism and just re and just re add the ritual that had been removed from, from their lives by the reformation. And it's, it's interesting that that doesn't get mentioned at all. And I wonder why that is. I know it's not like, it it basically just underscores that there's that ritual that that was sorely missed by people. Um, there's this book called um, "Stripping the Altars," and I forget who wrote it, but it's all about the state of English Catholicism at the time of, of the Protestant Reformation and how it was a magisterial reform that was imposed from the top down in pretty much. Uh, pretty much against the will of everyone involved from, you know, the middle la- layers all the way down. Like, like the, the English peasantry and the English like common people did not welcome the reforms. They didn't welcome any of the things that came along with the reforms, like the removal of the days off for feast days. Uh, they didn't re- uh, welcome the removal of like the, you know, usury laws. They didn't welcome you know, the dissolution of the monasteries and the dissolution of the nunneries and stuff like that. In fact, it was all resisted all along the way. And um, the, the people's involvement within, in the, the, the rituals of the church were, were sorely missed once they were gone. And so they found other ways to keep, to keep the, the echo of those rituals alive. One of those ways being through Freemasonry 
and other kinds of secret societies. And it seems kind of strange that he wouldn't discuss that at all. Well, especially interesting is that this is the chapter that deals with the like the the revolutionary period as well. Right. And the the role that like the fraternal orders and especially the Masonic lodges play in uh in in the revolution and you know the, so many of the figures of the revolution being members of Masonic lodges it's it's a really bizarre thing to leave out yeah do you do you because it was also the way they organized their um essentially like the business community uh made bonds within the fraternal organizations and also uh, revolutionary bonds were made within those organizations as well. Do y'all think it's possible part of the reason why he doesn't include that is because that sort of topic tends to be associated with more right-wing, like, conspiratorial narratives about history? Because that was the first place oh, yeah. I encountered those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the first place I encountered them as well, you know, having grown up uh, in a conservative Christian family. That's the first place I ever heard about Freemasonry is how they worship lucifer mm-hmm. and uh stuff like that when in reality they're it's a clearly christian organization yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean you know what he also doesn't mention deism at all mm-hmm. which i don't know it's kind of weird it seems like that because he mentions uh we, we learn a lot about the unitarian universalists who i always thought were just like harmless hippies but it turns out they're very much <laughs> part of uh this whole pecuniary enchantment that he's so much against well don before you move on to the next chapter you mind if i tag two uh quick yeah, quotes I, I was Absolutely. interested in so just in terms of i'm tempted to quote uh bruno latour here and say the whole thing of like we have never been modern like that sort of enchantment sort of uh view of the world has kind of always been there uh so this is on 120 um, he says still, and he's talking about uh, Winthrop here, he says still his kind of alchemical and hermetic philosophy retained a hold on the Puritan imagination. As late as 1721, the Connecticut minister John Wise was arguing that by employing the quote, lapis auraficus, is that right, Chris? I trust your pronunciation more than mine. What is the word again? A-U-R-I-F-I-C-U-S, auraficus? Auraficus, we'll go with that. The lapis auraficus or philosopher's stone in our heads, we could turn matter into silver and gold by the power of thought as soon as any other people. The alchemical dreams of the Puritans foreshadowed later American hopes for a business millennium made possible by advanced technology, which we are going to uh, destroy that whole perspective in part three, which I'm going to lead and I am so excited for. (laughs) So are we moving on to the next chapter? It's going to do chapter five, yeah. Let's do it, CC Don. I forgot something. I was going to mention this, and then Jason disappeared. But an incredibly important part of Chapter 4 that we shouldn't leave out because it's going to inform all the rest of what we're mm. talking about is the reason that the Puritans felt so justified in stealing the land of the Indians and kicking them off of it is because they viewed any land that was not improved as sinful. So if you had land and you weren't constantly improving it, then you were indulging in sloth. So right. they thought the Indians were always indulging in sloth and they were pagans and it was okay to take their land. So that's an incredibly important part of all of the this, this whole type of pecuniary reason and the Protestant work ethic and uh, you know uh, prosperity gospel is the idea that um, improvement 
is next to godliness. Okay. Right. That's all. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. All right. So for chapter five, uh, between 1790 and 1860, we have Protestant evangelicalism. Uh, that uh, spreads across the nation. <laughs> so gone is the predestination of the Puritans and Calvinism. And I'm going to read this on 127. That's a brief description. Uh, it says, American evangelicals combined intense and often flamboyant emotionalism and an individualist and democratic ethos and an instrumentalist conception of reason. With their zealous pursuit of souls through missionary activity, revivalism, and cross-denominationalist societies, evangelicals widen the scope of Protestant authority. I also think it's important what he says right after that. He yeah, says, yeah, I want to read that. Evangelicals achieved their cultural hegemony that could be every bit as coercive and exclusionary as the Puritan city on the hill, a moral establishment that Tocqueville registered when he observed that Christianity possessed, quote, more actual power over souls in America than anywhere else, unquote. Yeah. Yes, and uh, just from the intro to this chapter, this, this line right here that, uh, the United States became a scrambling business society dominated by the pecuniary interests of ordinary working people. An, in a nation without a nobility or an established church, the capitalist marketplace was becoming the new religio, the bond of what passed for fraternity among competitive Protestant Americans. Yeah, so, I like that. Um, I don't think it's right at the beginning, but um, that he ties this uh this violent cultural hegemony of of evangelical protestantism he roots it um at least in the first instance in the absence of an established church like right, you know right. it's the the freedom of religion that the the worst kind of christians were f- trying to find when they left england to to come to the colonies is uh is precisely the 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 reason why they were able to dominate so so thoroughly right and he he's he even says that it's the that the marketplace is what passes for the fraternal relations otherwise provided by the church and communion and feast days and all of the the ways in which religion organized social life in the old world. Absent an established church, the marketplace becomes a church. Not only in terms of the sort of much more much less tangible ways that we're talking about, like the enchantment. Um, of the world through the sort of belief in the magical power of money and commerce, but also in terms of, and, and I think probably it, one can't happen without the other, but it's the, the forming of new social bonds on the basis of commerce, as opposed to the basis uh, on the basis of uh, being a part of a congregation. And I think it's no accident either that the type of reason that has to dominate for evangelical Protestantism has to be instrumental reason as opposed to the imagination that we talked about with the romantics right. in, in the right. last part. I think that's that's also a really crucial distinction that you know instrumental reason becomes dominant, which will then also like have huge implications for technology and for all sorts of diabolical and horrible developments in the 20th century as well. I also think, just like in the last chapter, the um I think it's interesting the the survival of witchcraft and astrology and animism and magic and all of the things which we I think typically associate with the absence of a what we could call a Protestant cultural hegemony. So it, it casts I think it casts the witch hunts in precisely the light that um, whatever other problems they might have that people like Federici try to cast it in, which is like not actually to root out non-christian spiritualism 
but that there's a social function and once it's achieved the uh the harmless magic in witchcraft that the average uh tradesperson or farmer or whoever might employ in their daily life is of no consequence because it is no longer a challenge to the social order so it's not a religious conflict in the way that we're taught at least um i would say that that's an implication that can be drawn from the at least the brief treatment of of the surviving folk practices in this chapter and the last so let me offer a potentially spicy take would you all say that magic and alchemy in that form are recuperated oh shit (laughs) the answer is yes everything is recuperated (laughs) (laughs) didn't didn't you hear yeah i did i I heard it on a show that i listened to sometimes (laughs) spongebob squarepants well i think that folk magic and alchemy have uh two different key audiences you know because folk magic anyone anybody can um be involved in folk magic was the thing that the uh, the witch hunts were precisely trying to stamp out. And whereas alchemy was, you know, something that the upper classes were involved in. You know, you yeah. had to be, you had to be an educated person to be involved in alchemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, um, and alchemy, of course, like, well, like all magic uh, at the time was invocation of, you know, celestial bodies that had to do with Christianity. Um, so it's like, it was, it was all Christian. It was just sort of like appealing to extra heterodox ways to harness the power of God. So it wasn't like there was the fact that magic was happening was a bad thing because it was sort of all encompassed within Christianity. And in in fact, the Pope had his own sorcerers and astrologers and stuff like that. Uh, There's actually a whole book on it called Papal Magic that uh, I've been really wanting to dig into. But it's it's super interesting to see the kind of magic that gets that gets um, cracked down on, and it's specifically during the Protestant era that it does. Um, I think we talked about this last time too. Yeah, um, but but yeah, but the 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 point is that it breaks. It's the witch hunts break the back of independent uh, models of social organization, right. rather than actually trying to stamp out religious or quasi-religious practices that serve that uh serve a community outside of the boundaries defined by uh, the church and the sermon and you know and the specific relationship between parson and a uh, member of the congregation right uh, and certainly like there is a case that can be made that like yeah sure the pope had astrologers and but like so- something like divination is just at odds with any version of Christianity. If you take it very literally, at least that's the way it's, that's the way we understand it. Now, I think it's interesting that it, it takes a very long time for that to go out of fashion, even among people who are, uh, fervent believers who might even have joined in a witch hunt were one to have happened in their community. Uh, we'll, we get to talk a little bit about divination when we get to the, to Joseph Smith and the Mormons. Uh, that's my favorite part of this chapter. <laughs> yeah, the Mormons were nuts, dude. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> I, I love this. They still are. They still are. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's move ahead to get to that point. Then so, onward keep, to keep the Mormons. This, yeah, yeah. Keep so, this train moving. Yeah. So um, so for the evangelical, still um, the belief in wonders and miracles receded somewhat during these times, uh, but belief in the divine glory of the natural law uh, was all the stronger. 
Market forces and economic laws were understood as part of these on par with things like physics and biology. So uh, moving on to uh, Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening. He's one of the primary thinkers of of, uh, that movement. And part of his message is that Christians are entrusted with God's money and will have to give an account of exactly how they managed it. And similarly, moving on to the Southern... God's money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, similarly, Southern evangelicals um, saw slavery as a stewardship uh, with which they were entrusted and which they they could manage faithfully by maintaining the system. A little bit later, there was um, this idea that I think we see partially again in Mormonism and also partially uh, with Emerson, but that uh, self-creation was a partnership with divine power. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why Nietzsche was such a big Emerson fan. It's crazy how, like, the platonic logic that underlies Christianity is completely just jettisoned from Mormonism. It's like, actually, matter is good, you know, because that, that this sort of platonic logic uh, of exists in Paul in Christianity, specifically in Paul. And he talks, uh, he talks a lot about how uh, that we're not to be of the world. We're just supposed to be in the world and how we're supposed to focus on spiritual things and focus on uh, setting aside your rewards in heaven. It's very platonic, right? Um, and it a lot of people posit that Paul got his got a lot of what he a lot of his ideas about spirituality and the spiritual world from uh, the Neoplatonists uh, because he was a Greek educated he was Jewish but he was a Greek educated Jew that lived in Asia Minor and some people say oh you, well Paul Paul obviously came in into contact with the Gnostics or Paul obviously came into contact with the Neoplatonists because he imposes this sort of spiritual view uh, onto Judaism where it doesn't exist previous to that. And it doesn't really exist in Jesus either, according to a lot of these people. So it's like we have a hairy, a heavy Platonist component in Christianity that the Mormons just go like, eh, matter is good, actually, you know. And guess what? You can also become God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is some, I feel like in early Christianity, there is some idea of like embodiedness um, and material creation being being somewhat good, though. Like, I don't think, like, definitely in Paul, I think you see, yeah, that separation. But I think in yeah. uh, other sources, like, there, I think it's, like, definitely, I think you have, like, a little bit of uh, both going on there at the same time, which is why I think you have a lot of difficulty with the church trying to figure out how do you understand the, uh, you know, divinity of Christ's body and stuff. So Yeah, I mean, I, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the Bible, I mean, the New Testament specifically was written by, you know, a dozen different people mm-hmm. at different times, and it reflected the, uh, you know, the, the beliefs of disparate groups that would probably all hate each other, and it's all <laughs> crammed <laughs> together into a bunch of books that are supposed to agree with each other but don't. It's one of the reasons why I think it's so interesting and cool. It is interesting. I think when you start reading it through the lens of, yeah, these are all different books that all disagree with each other and have different ideas, Mm -hmm. it's a lot more interesting than when you're reading it in an orthodox way that all of this is like a unified theology. Whenever I was in in undergrad, I took an early Christianity course, and we had to look at specific verses from the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning that they agree with each other, right? Mm. They're they're synchronized, (laughs) right? they, They run together. And point out where they disagree with each other very, very blatantly. 
mm-hmm. like you know and then the way that we understand them and uh, as christians whenever we're like raised as christians or whatever is oh yeah the this story and that story we just run them together and now we think of the cock crowing three times or mm-hmm. you know and uh we think we sort of blend all the stories together and have one narrative of it so if you watch the, the jesus movies and stuff like that it doesn't show the version of events as it happened in any one of the gospels it shows just a weird conflation of all of them right and uh that's just the way it's understood so when you whenever i got to college and i started reading this the gospels next to each other i'm just like holy crap these are totally different they disagree with each other completely the narrative is not seamless but yeah that's sort of a digression sorry that's all right uh, so I think he wants to, he, he has an interesting discussion of a, the first uh, monthly business periodical in the U.S., which is called Hunt's uh, Merchant Magazine. And he says it seamlessly blended business reportage with uh, moral instruction and religious uh, pedagogy. And Sounds like the most boring magazine ever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so evangelicals uh, also embraced an enchantment of um, technology and saw things like the railroads as a form of spiritual or mor- moral progress. Um, and let me have a, have a quote on 140 I was going to read to do with um, development of the ideas of manifest destiny. Uh, by the middle of the uh, 1840s, the predestination of the elect of the elect had evolved into the, into the manifest destiny of all. The Puritan errand and the liberal empire became the quest for evangelical dominion. Alongside clerical economists such as Francis Wayland and uh, Henry Carey, ministers such as Lyman Beecher preached an evangel- evangelical gospel of empire. And manifest destiny was not only just over the continent, but over uh, the entire world. And there's like a quote about the white democracy aimed at the industrial conquest of the world. That's at the bottom of 141. And then we... Yeah, it's... Good. So it's interesting to see that, you know, even as early as Jefferson, you've got not just looking westward towards, you know, joining up with the Pacific Ocean, but looking at Cuba and, you know, other other um, colonies of the, you know, the European empires as being the next steps for, um, you know, the, the United States to, to start conquering. So from the very, very, very beginning, the United States has had on its mind an imperial project. I think something that you'll see, too, whenever we do our episode on the Dulles Brothers for our revolutionary politics in Central and South America series is one of the driving tenets of their whole philosophy of the world was exactly this sort of like missionary zeal combined with American empire. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, Alan and John Foster Dulles, their perspective on that would come to shape, you know, in horrible ways, like U.S. foreign policy and invasion and empire for, you know, most of a century. So, I mean, it's interesting to read here that this is, you're seeing sort of these early developments of what was eventually going to lead to, I think, a lot of the things we see still happening in the 20th century. Yeah. Right. And we'll also see um, the the basis that is laid in Mormonism for just the Mormon zeal for joining the CIA and fomenting coups. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so let's move on to the section on Mormonism. 
Let's nice. Let's do it. So, yeah, so, uh, We're coming, Mormons. <laughs> <laughs> so Mormonism, which is uh, developing at this time, had similar if not even greater emphasis on the link between material success and godliness. Uh, like the Puritans, the first generation embraced uh, a form of communalism uh, that contradicted or counteracted market forces, uh, but this tendency faded very quickly. And the uh, Mormon doctrine that a matter was eternal meant both that uh, first that uh, matter, uh, the, the material and spiritual were closer than in Orthodox Christianity, and two, that God himself was an entrepreneur who uh, <laughs> would take, uh, take things that they, that they found and improve them. And this was the model for, yeah, I guess, um, Mormon adoption of, like wholesale adoption of market logic. I don't know why. Whenever I think about God as entrepreneur, I just see Roger Stone in a top hat. <laughs> it's a very horrible image to have. Um, yeah. So like I was interested, I didn't know this. Um, and I know a little bit more about Mormonism than, you know, just probably the average person on the street, but I didn't know that they didn't believe, they don't believe that God created the world ex nihilo, you know, out of nothing that, God, yeah, that. that matter was already there and God improved it and was previously just a regular ass dude. And then that's how he became God was <laughs> by improving the world. He, he was just he came across, he came across the matter that made up what could be the universe. And he sowed seeds of stars and planets and he plowed it, you know, and turned it into the universe and reaped the rewards just like any white man can do after taking land from the Cheyenne or the Sioux or whoever's in your way. You yeah, saying, and that you, I knew I did know that that Mormon heaven is basically you get to be the god of your own planet, which should still blow everyone's mind. Uh, <laughs> time to hear that, <laughs> but I didn't re- realize that the god that um, that they worship is also just you know a regular dude that just you know got really good at entrepreneurship and became god. Yeah, he bootstrapped himself into success. Into yeah. becoming God. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to read this uh, quote on 148. This is, uh, I think it's starting, McCarrie is starting with a quote from Smith. Um, you have got to learn how to make yourselves gods, Smith admonished his followers early on. As one of his chief disciples, Lorenzo Snow, put it pithily, quote, as man now is, God once was. As God is now, man may be, end quote. A man, this is still McCare, a man makes himself a God, Smith taught, quote, by going from a small capacity to a great capacity, from a small degree to another, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, end quote. I mean, for me, I, I hear that, and it's not hard to just take the next leap and say, you know, you make yourself a God by vertical and horizontal integration in your industry. <laughs> like, that's the next thing that I hear in that line. <laughs> It's all there. It's all. It's all right there in the in the very beginning. So, do you think that there's just like this in Mormonism imparted to you, much like in the way that Catholic guilt is imparted to Catholics, and just a uh, self-loathing is imparted into Calvinists? That <laughs> there is this like just inferiority complex and like delusions of grandeur that is imparted to every Mormon. Like you know, I've got to become God. So, you know, I have to be a Fortune 500 guy. I've got to, you know, to be a great general or a great 
you know, some sort of great person in order to, to have improved myself and the world around me in order to become God. I mean, you'd have to wonder if that's the core religious teaching and you're also being socialized within a family and a community that's built on those beliefs. You have to think that they have, I mean, I'll say this as a, you know, speaking from a therapist perspective, those ideas become (laughs) absolutely structural to your whole psyche and way of understanding the world and your sense of self. I, I, I mean, the idea that they would not have just massive implications for what you think your sense of worth and like how your life should be structured. I think it's uh, to me, it it would be impossible for them not to. It certainly think it would be a lot harder to maintain a system of plural marriage without that sort of aspiration to Godhood on the part of like the male half of the Mormon faith. It's like, it's a, it's a way of getting like a little, a little glimpse of the, what it's like to be God because you have like dominion over other human beings lives. And, I know that there's like a lot of there's there are some woke takes about uh, plural marriage as as being an early proto feminism, but I don't know if I really see it. Yeah, I don't know. I've seen Big Love. I don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, between South Park and Big Love, I feel like I know everything I need to know about the Mormons. <laughs> um, no, I I did really like this um, because it, like in I have always. Uh, thought of the church of latter-day saints as is thinking of it of its self-conception as being christian um and I, this quote uh by brigham young in 1871 that says we differ from the christian world in our religious faith and belief and we do so very materially mm-hmm. uh that that was like a that was a big shock to me like that mm-hmm. that really actually illustrated how little i learned about the mormons from south park and big love Right, like I always assumed that the Mormons had had some kind of uh, like shared salvation perspective. Like you know, Protestants, uh, the less repulsive Protestants, don't think that all other Protestants and Catholics are going to hell. Catholics don't think that everyone who's not a Catholic is going to hell. In fact, if you really get down to it, Catholics barely think anyone is going to hell, if they think anyone's going to hell at all. Um, but like Mormons are like, no, nah, if you're not a Mormon, fuck you, you're going to hell. You know. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What? Um, also, just in terms of interesting theology, I don't know how much this can contribute to any really important understanding of things, but um, this idea that the Holy Spirit is a spiritual fluid that pervades and unites all material substance in the cosmos um, is a, it's a really interesting way of, and it seems like a peculiarly like industrial American attempt to impart a sort of scientific understanding of the divine by like ascribing like a tangible material nature to something like one third of the Trinity. I just think that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. What did you all think about the short section on 146 where he talks about uh, the Mormons? What does he call it? Theocratic communalism or theocratic collectivism. Do you all remember this part? Hold on. Let me find the quote real quick. Well, let me let me read it really quick because in the interest of it. you know shitting all over the Mormons, but also you know finding some strains that were maybe existing as well. So this is McCary Harry says much of the appeal and the dread of early Mormonism stemmed from its theocratic collectivism. 
Emulating the early Christians, Mormons officially held their property in common. Families were required to, quote, consecrate, unquote, their possessions to the church, whose elders redistributed them according to need. The Book of Mormon traces the origins and laments the, and laments the evils of inequality. The fall of the Nephites, the ancient Hebrews who journeyed to America and comprised the continent's aboriginal residents, commenced when they began to be divided into classes, and that's actually from the Book of Mormon. Later critics of Mormonism, that might be all of us on this podcast right now, (laughs) as well as later Mormons often downplay or overlook this communalist ideal of the Latter-day Saints. So, I mean, I think McCarrier is interesting here that I feel like he's a very generous, like, reader, too, as, like, he will completely shit on something and destroy it, but then also, like, somehow find a thread. The one thread in there that might have been like, but there was still this, this sort of you know, communalist idea that did exist. So to me, I just, I thought it was interesting to see that in there as well. It seems like it's so really, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it seems like uh, in so many of these, they start off like the first generation or yeah. two mm-hmm. is, uh, yeah, communal or attempting to overcome the market. Uh, and then that just falls away after that. Yeah. And I mean, just to finish off that paragraph, he says, though hardly egalitarian and certainly short lived Mormon communalism reflected a desire to eradicate the capitalist market forsaking the, lu- the lucrative agony of competition for love and mutual aid. So, yeah, I guess that's what's interesting, right? It's like usually those threads are like very short lived and they're mm-hmm. not perfect by any means, yeah. but they're there. The best it's part of that is religious, uh, religious conviction isn't a material base for the formation of socialism. Almost. Mm. Almost. Uh, Almost. What's yeah. really interesting about this is that the, the, the idea that the fall of the Nephites can be attributed to their division into classes is that the Nephites, uh, being the indigenous inhabitants of the continent whenever white people arrived, they didn't have those classes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they never actually did it. You know, that's, a, that's what we say in a psychoanalysis. That might be what we call a projection, maybe. It's like <laughs> these class-ridden societies that have like own own their land privately uh we got to eradicate them <laughs> i mean that is uh, interesting just have to go find them first mm-hmm. i mean that is interesting though right like to attribute the fall of the yeah the indigenous people as like class society without any sort of critique of their own again like further captured by the capitalist market i mean there's something really interesting to me about that like the way that you would sort of expel the internal like division within your own society onto something else and then use that as like you know further basis to claim land or destroy that particular civilization i think is an interesting one i mean it's important i feel like there's a lot of you know terrible gravity that that has and how whole ideologies do that yeah like when we think about the mental gymnastics that make up um the the foundations of Mormon theology, like it's really easy to focus on the magical plates. But I think this one is much more interesting, which is this desire to construct uh, a false vision of the world outside the compound uh, in order to justify the existence of the compound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's interesting that I was made aware of this recently that the, that there exists a Mormon worker group just like there's a catholic worker group Mm -hmm. and it's basically communalist mormons who are like trying to get back to that original uh ethos behind mormonism just like uh many catholic workers are trying to get at the communist book of acts nature of christianity Hmm. and uh i want i i don't know too much about the mormon worker people but i wonder uh, what they think if they're going back to the early days of mormonism what they think about plural marriage It'd be something to look into. It's yeah. interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, if we're considering becoming Mormons, the, we probably should be <laughs> should join the Mormon worker movement. Speaking of which, like 
the the organization of the Mormon Church and a lot of the rituals and everything are very Masonic. It's another interesting mm. thing that doesn't get touched on in the book at huh. all. Interesting, because yeah. like Joseph Smith was a, a Mason, and so was his father, I believe. And th- it talks a little bit in this book about how there's a lot of uh, his sort of magical practices that he engaged in and the divination and stuff like that, which would make sense if he was like part of an organization that's like trying to keep hermetic and alchemical teachings alive. I like how we're doing a symptomatic reading of the text and now just focusing on the things that are systematically <laughs> obscured or deleted out of the text or left out. I think that's a, it's a, it's very, I think a super productive way to read it. Was well, there anything I've else you guys s- wanted to talk about in this chapter or do we want to move on to six? All I was going to say was that um, because I studied you know, the Western esotericism and the occult just for fun, like for a very long time, this stuff is all glaringly obvious to me in its absence. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't help but shoehorn this in, but one of the books that I did read that, you know, I don't know how scholarly it is, but it was an interesting like historical uh, study of the role of like the occult and secret societies. I think it's called The History of Secret Societies by J.M. Roberts. Anyway, I read mm-hmm. that book like years ago and it really stuck with me. So mm-hmm. for what that's worth, if anyone's interested to read that book. That's a, that's a typical Red Library con- comment. This book makes me think of another book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is like the whole premise of our show is literally yeah. like, hey, you remember that book I read that one time? It reminds me of this book. That's all of my comments on the show are just streams of like, hey, I read this book once. Here it is. That's the whole premise of libraries, too. It's like, hey. Yeah, that's true. Like books. So put some books on your books so you can book while you book. <laughs> hey, you want some um, book on that book you got there? <laughs> Come to Red Library. That's the- our new tagline. <laughs> The last note that I have written down for this chapter is uh, about Mormonism as the first unadulterated prosperity gospel. And I think, yeah, I think the author makes a pretty good case for that. Mm. Even d- even despite the early um, communalist origins, like certainly by the time that Brigham Young is es- establishing a bank, which is which he proclaims will swallow up all the other banks, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear what they're going for. Well, and, I mean, just to jump to the very last line in the chapter, because uh, I think it's a good one. He says, as so often happens with populist firebrands, the erstwhile tribune of the laboring classes became a champion of the professional managerial elite. The sworn enemy of mammonism morphed into a celebrant of the upper echelons of capitalist enchantment. So he's talking about some other like populist figures, but I thought that line was, you know, in typical McCare hair fashion was very cutting and very elegant. Yeah. Well, it does happen to apply to the majority of of what is surveyed in this chapter. Right. Yeah, I think so too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we could go on now. All right. Yeah. Chapter six then. So now we're talking about transcendentalism. Uh, so we have uh, the post-Protestant uh, utopian communities started to spring up, particularly around the uh, 1840s. Uh, many of these were t- intended as an escape from the market revolution at the time. Um, I'm going to read a quote from... 156. So this is from Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's technically from like a fictional book that he wrote, but it is based on some of his experiences in one of these communities. This is on the bottom of 156. Pioneers of agrarian chic, visitors to uh, Blythedale, praise the Arcadians for, quote, imbuing the ordinary rustic occupations with a kind of religious poetry, end quote. This is still Hawthorne speaking. Verse they would, uh, or this is, uh, sorry, um, McCarrier, verse they would never label, labor uh, to compose. Yet as the arduous days wear on, the poetry curdles into the uninspired prose of drudgery, futility, and resentment. For all their hoeing, milking, and shoveling, the pastoral bohemians failed to usher in the reenchantment of the world. So 
there's this attempt at uh, some of these communities, but in general, uh, it doesn't seem to work out very well in most of them. Uh, and then he moves on to David Th- uh, Henry David Thoreau, who visits one who visits particularly uh, Brook Farm uh, and was not very impressed. Uh, in his uh, own retreat, he continued to be critical of the market logic, but McCarraher has a nice quote here that says uh, on 158, Yet Thoreau's personal dissent was memorable but unavailing, as individual nonconformity could achieve little when disconnected from any broader collective purpose. So I have I thought, to tell you, I love this. I love all of this because I read The Transcendentalist really heavy, like mm-hmm. a long time ago. Um, but there's something here that reminds me of us talking about ne- negative identification on the Lost Horizons episode about how a lot of, you know, sort of like bourgeois intellectuals would you know, be very critical of capitalism and then would want to sort of like immerse themselves in like the working people and the poor and then would just become horribly disenchanted because they weren't part, they didn't match up to this ideal they had of this sort of like nobility of suffering and labor. And there's a line at the bottom of 156 that reminds me of this. He says, uh, I guess talking about the Arcadians and, uh, and the Blackdale romance from Hawthorne, he says, they also quickly discover that the liturgy of labor is a sweaty and grueling ritual. Um, quote, the clods of earth, which we so constantly belabored and turned over and over, were never etherealized into our thought. Our thoughts, on the contrary, were fast becoming cloddish, unquote. So I just, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, C.C. Don, but my impression kind of about Hawthorne's work here and Thoreau is that in some ways, like, they sort of idealized, like, this sort of, like, individualist, like, return to nature, mm-hmm. like, resistance to capitalism, but we're just horribly, like, divested of that illusion whenever they actually did it yeah yeah Yeah. this one quote here says intellectual activity is compatible with any large amount of bodily exercise uh the yeoman and the scholar are two distinct individuals and can never be melted or welded into one substance which as a person they grew up doing manual labor and before i went to college that's all i did after college that's what i did and uh only recently have i ever have i stopped uh, I can I could have told you that, you know, <laughs> after working in a 130 degree attic for, you know, 10 hours, you, it's not very likely that you're going to go and read and write down your thoughts about it. You're probably likely going to just be exhausted and fall asleep early. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. funny that that that's a revelation to someone. Yeah, man, <laughs> when you get tired, it's hard to do intellectual work. But it is. So I think moving on from Thoreau, he wants to talk about Whitman a little bit. Um, and Whitman, oh, I just wanted to say one thing about. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. sure. No, no, good. You, you talking like moving us on always prompts me to remember the thing that I was just <laughs> about to say. <laughs> no, is uh, when Adam was said that he was messing with the transcendentalist real heavy for a while. How old were you? That's this. I wanted to bring that up. How old were you? Uh, I believe I was. 22 23 yeah something like yeah okay because i did too when i was like 19 or 18 i remember being in in college and being like well i guess i'd gotta you know go read some uh walt whitman and uh henry david thoreau because it was just like that's that's the the white guy rebel that it's acceptable to be into whoa like shots thoreau, fired you know? shots fired chris come on what are you doing here we're all friends here on the shows <laughs> No, I mean, I was, I was into it also. It's, it's good stuff. But you have to also remember that Thoreau withdrew from capitalism and withdrew from modern society to go live in a place that his parents owned. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And, his, yeah. and he would, like, 
go and have his clothes washed and like his mom would bring him sandwiches and shit. <laughs> yes. Um, that kind of communism is uh, not for the many. I used to know a guy like that. He was really into leftover crack. <laughs> Shots fired at Wookiees. <laughs> and Oogles. Oogles and Wookiees. I don't remember which one is which. Do you guys remember that? I don't. No. <laughs> I do... <laughs> I do like the idea of romantic of transcend transcendentalism as an American branch of romanticism. Mm. I just yeah. think that like I'd never really thought about um well, I'd never really thought about this enough to have uh recognized that or have to come to that conclusion myself. I, I will it's, say I will say in my defense as a twenty two year old acceptable white guy rebel, I think that is precisely what drew me to it. And reading McCare Hare's work now, it contextualizes it in a way that I think at the time either I was very uh, subtly picking up or I just honestly just didn't even really give a shit about because, you know, at the time I was a musician and I think the romantic impulse is what drew me to a lot of it. Um, but it's right. an important yeah, corrective absolutely. for me now, like reading this to to sort of fill in that social, political, economic, contextual background and understand, oh yeah, there was a reason why I was drawn to this and yet there there were a lot of things going on with it that I just had no awareness of. But it's important to learn that now, I think. I remember picking up uh, civil disobedience and uh, wearing my Che Guevara shirt and like sitting conspicuously in like a coffee shop, like reading civil disobedience. You know, I was reading my copy of Infinite Jest and was leering at you probably because it could have been in the same coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, y'all remember going into places and being able to hang out in them? God, Ooh. dude, I miss hanging out yeah, in a coffee terrible. shop so bad. I know. Yeah, Don Don hates it, but I definitely miss it quite quite terribly. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, all right, so for Whitman, uh, on the other hand, thought that markets had a moral value and material accumulation uh, was necessary for both democracy and human progress. He doesn't spend a ton of time on Whitman. I don't know if you guys wanted to. He spends a lot more time on throw or on Emerson after that. So I don't know if you guys wanted to hit on anything with Whitman before we hit Emerson. Well, let's see. Um, Whitman is another one that starts out good and then just gets real capitalist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. What did I write down for Whitman? Whitman identified the grandeur of God with the blear of trade and toil. His cosmology of capitalist enchantment is most vivid in his Song of the Occupations, where he describes a world of enlivened objects as an affable and generous place an animate world a beloved democratic community of people and things and then it goes through the poem here which i'm not going to read thank you for that about how but i will i will read this one line when the minted gold in the vault smiles like the night watchman's daughter which kind of like grossed me out but you know yeah that's some real creep creep shit there (laughs) yeah it's, it's creepy and it's very very pecuniary so it Double shitty. Yeah. Whitman's canceled. <laughs> Whitman's, yep. Walt Whitman's canceled. Sorry. All right. So, uh, yeah, if we want to move on to Emerson. Emerson, um, let's do it. So, yeah, there's actually quite a bit, several pages in this. Um, I'll try to go through them quick, but you guys can definitely stop me when necessary. Um, so, the boundary between the material and the spiritual is erased under Emerson. Uh, under Emerson. Uh, nature is divine. And uh, basically, at first, Emerson wants to. Uh, challenge the power of commerce and money 
economy could be a sacrament, uh, but only for improving uh, conditions and for helping others. Gifts and not commodity was the proper template uh, that he saw. But later, Emerson begins to uh, embrace the full logic of the market and commerce. The world is a market, and we must embrace it fully. Um, It is the way that we can participate with the universe. Uh, On 165, there is a discussion of his ideas of uh, basically using the market um, for self-reliance. And this is on the bottom of 165. This is certainly self-reliance, but it it is no theology of producerism, no acceptance of human fititude, no posture of humility. To be self-sacrificed is to be self-created. In other words, to be divine. Uh, Thus, the uh, proprietary self-reliance that Emerson championed was rooted in uh, self-divinization, the anointment of the self by the self as its own metaphysical and moral foundation. Yet, as Emerson himself asserted, if one's own self is divine, so are all the others, each in his own world. So when Emerson enjoined his audiences to, quote, live after the infinite law that is in you, end quote, he sanctioned the endless combat of wills that defines the capitalist order. Unlike many of his uh, current progressive uh, admirers, Emerson never hesitated to draw the economic conclusions from his humanism of divinized power. I have to say the last line in this paragraph is just maybe one of my favorite lines in the Mm -hmm. whole book so far. Uh, McCare Harris says, more so than Protestant economics, Emerson's theology of power captured the nihilistic energy of capitalism. I just thought that was a just I pure heavy metal. We got ripped off with our romantics, you know? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. The European romantics were way cooler than the American romantics because the, uh, the European romantics are just romanticizing like capitalism from like 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 20 years ago to them, not us. Right. But um, so he does say here that Emerson denounced the dominion of money that accompanied the expansion of the marketplace. His essays and journal entries at the time abound with foreboding at the spread of capitalist enterprise. He what, said, what page is this tr- on? Uh, well, mine, it's 216, but I don't think it's oh, uh, okay. the same. Yeah, the, the EPUB is different. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah, I'm the EPUB and I also have it like for old man eyes like I have, uh, the trail of the serpent reaches into all the lucrative professions and practices of man. He complained to an audience of mechanics apprentices and it introduced a system of selfishness of distrust of concealment of superior keenness, not of giving, but taking advantage. So it's like he is, uh, you know, espousing praise for pecuniary enchantment while decrying the excesses of capitalism. He's got a very utopian capitalist worldview where the the European romantics seem to have a very anti-capitalist utopian worldview. Yeah. He, Emerson really just didn't like crony capitalism. Yeah. Emerson's just a libertarian. (laughs) I honestly was going to say just sounds like a pretty standard liberal to me, you know? It's like, oh yeah, capitalism is good and it's going to create the, you know, the um the divine community, but you know, of course, we just got to fix its problems. We just got to make sure, you know, it it uh we regulate it properly. We got to flip flip the proper levers and uh switches and everything will work out great. So yeah, actually very tip, very typical just liberal. Fucking lib. <laughs> 
Yeah, so Emerson, think, Emerson think, is a lib, dude. And I think that that section that you read, yeah, is from the the earlier time that he was, mm-hmm. yeah, more critical of um, the market uh, and market, right. market effects. Um, yeah, and then it's it's over the next um, like decade, maybe after that, that he kind of starts to transition more into basically a pure market logic. Type was thing. he was he the um, uni- Unitarian pastor before he was? A poet yes, or yes, at the same yeah. time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's where I got that bit about unit- Unitarians that I was talking about, about being harmless hippies that <laughs> let socialists meet in their uh, their parish hall. Because, like, have has everyone here been to a socialist meeting in a Unitarian parish hall? Yeah. I have. <laughs> yeah. Just Don hasn't been. Is <laughs> yeah, that just an aversion to it. meetings or what? For, yeah, generally. Yeah. yeah. There's more than six people gathered anywhere. I usually don't go. <laughs> yeah. I can see when, that. when six or more are gathered in your name, you will not find me. <laughs> I will not be attending. Thank you. <laughs> That's in the there, Bible. <laughs> there you will find someone else other than me. Um, Don three sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Emerson Emerson's philosophy um, also defended. <laughs> both the laws of the market, but also the violence that re- was required to sustain it. It says, uh, progress, enterprise, and destiny would leave broken bodies in its wake. And uh, this is, quote, uh, cruel kindness, uh, serving the whole even to the ruin of the member, end quote, is needed. That was a quote from him specifically. Uh, that was on page, oh, shit, I didn't write it down. Let's see. Yeah, it's meaningless to me anyway, so I don't care. <laughs> 169, I believe it was. Uh, nice. Yeah, 169. Uh, well, Zach De La Rocha says that your anger is a gift. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Zach 316. <laughs> Zach 316. I mean, I will say this is on 168, and I think this will start to set us up pretty well for part three with, with talking about the sort of demonic enchantment of technology and industrialization. He says, for Emerson, as for the evangelical economists and for the rising clerisy of capital, commercial expansion and industrial might were constructing a beloved community. And so uh, finally, he wants to end this chapter by talking about if if there was a religious tradition in America that resisted capitalist logic, uh, it could only be found in the religion of the enslaved. Uh, They identified the hypocrisy of Southern Christianity uh, and saw money, not Christ, as the god of the whites. Um, and yeah, he has a really cool discussion of Nat Turner. He's going to read this quote from 174. Uh, but Turner's confession was more penetrating and uh, voracious than all the grandiloquence of an Emerson. Supercharged with wonders, signs, and premonitions, Turner's narrative conveyed an account of the world of absolute ont- ontological transparency in which the material world possessed an emblematic sacramental corporeality. Seeing no barriers between the world of divinity and that of human affairs, Turner was anything but, quote, bewildered and overwrought, end quote. He discerned the malevolence of slavery with perfect, uh, perfectly lucid precision and judgment. Yeah, actually, that that theme um, of there being no division between the material and the and the metaphysical or the spiritual world seems to be the the key to uh, whatever radical, progressive, forward thinking uh, substance that has existed in any of the uh, kind of like millenarian Christian traditions from the previous section of the book and to this one. 
it's the refusal to demarcate between the two. And that there, there's an under, undercurrent of that that just flows through Catholicism as well, which is why so many millenarian movements come directly out of Catholicism, I think. Um, and when I was reading Nat Turner, I'm reminded a lot of like John Ball or Savonarola, who are like very, very much theologically uh, informed with their revolutionary zeal, you know? Yeah, I'm trying to find the part. I wrote the note that it was... Uh... The Slaves Hope for Paradise was political because it was religious. Yeah, they, yeah it's know, on like, 172. Uh, but it's it's better in the book than it is in my notes. But yeah, like I just got to say that reading through this part made me want to read more about Nat Turner, um, yeah. especially the when he's being interrogated by, what's his name, Thomas Gray? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, oh yeah, you thought you were going to like, you know, launch a res- an insurrection and emancipate the slaves, right? But, you know, don't you see you've kind of made a mistake don't you see you're wrong and that turner's response is to say well wasn't christ crucified mm. it's just like that's fucking baller yeah. right there yeah <laughs> and that that illustrates what i think is an older christianity the idea that what, what they who they call the athletes of god like the the christians who devoted their life to sacrificing themselves for other people um the uh you know the martyrs of the of the early the early persecuted church who would gladly be thrown to the lions or be tortured and killed uh, in order to, to save other people or in order to um, just to, to even just to display their, their uh, devotion to Christ it, and how markedly different that is from the, well, we got to exterminate the Indians because they're not uh, being capitalist enough, you know, and that, that pure early, just kind of suicidal, Christianity, but pure and early Christianity is is uh, taken up by Matt, Nat Turner. You know, um, he gets back at that like at that early Christian ethos. And when I say it's kind of suicidal, because a lot of early Christians did actively seek out martyrdom because they wanted to emulate Christ. Uh, I mean, I there are a couple that's of what Nat Turner was doing. I think Nat Turner was sacrificing himself because he hoped to, you know, free. Uh, to help to to play a part to to be a, a little bit of the manure of history, right? In freeing yeah. the slaves in the South. I think one of the things I really love about this section on Turner is the way it does try to tie up threads of how there is this undercurrent, this tradition. McCarrier um, here says uh, Turner's revelations raise the iniquity of slavery to the level of cosmic outrage. And I just. I just have to make sure that the phrase cosmic outrage is said on this episode. Uh, He continues, they recall the epiphanies of uh, medieval millenarians, Gerard Winstanley and the romantic adversaries of Mammon. And then he goes on to say, Turner's affidavit of transcendent barbarism and redemption was perhaps the most powerful and disturbing testimony of slave romanticism. So I also wanted to kind of just connect one dot here that I'm, I'm curious what you all think about it. And maybe we'll have to save this for another episode, but I couldn't help but think about Nat Turner and this romantic anti-capitalist tradition. And also think about Benjamin and the idea of divine violence and how that is still a concept that a lot of people wrestle with and don't really know how to make sense of is, you know, this idea that there could be a kind of violence that somehow like seeks to like, like restart the engine of history or seeks to like cut through in a way that I think is still like very difficult to grapple with. And I mean, it's like kind of under theorized in, in Benjamin too. But to me, I just think it's interesting to think about Nat Turner and Walter Benjamin as like part of the same tradition. Um, to me, that yeah. seems really important. 
I, yeah, I, I mean, I think we could definitely do an an episode one day about uh, Benjamin's um, uh, what is it, critique of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I think that we could draw some. We could draw from Nat Turner, Franz Fanon. You know, uh, striking at striking at power, uh, striking at the law to to uh, to strike a blow for justice. Yeah. Um, as as I think, like we never even in Augustinian just war theory, um, you have the idea that violence is anathema; it's bad unless that violence that is done will keep more violence from happening and will like protect people who would be harmed by that violence in the future. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same sort of thing is violence against injustice is not really violence. Uh, th- yeah, that is definitely something we could go off on a long-ass tangent about. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll put that on the stack of the 50 other episodes <laughs> that we're going to do together at some point. So. Yeah. Well, All right. Done. So, uh, yeah, I had some questions. I don't know if you guys are ready to move on to some of those we could talk about. Um, Hell yeah, sure. let's do it. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know how long these are going to take, but we'll see. Um so first, I was going to say that I think McCarrier is uh, challenging, is obviously cha- challenging the na- narrative of disenchantment. He seems to want to eventually end uh, with uh, an idea of capitalist enchantment. Uh, along the way, he kind of points to things like divination rods and alchemy as proof against this disenchantment process. Um, do we think that this is a, like a fair assessment to call these things enchanting? Enchanting, or like I, I, I guess I don't see that much of a. I'm not able to distinguish very clearly between uh, what these people would have seen as science and mm-hmm. things like alchemy. I think only like backwards can we look at those things and say they're a form of superstition um, or something that yeah. is is an enchantment. I think to them, I don't think that they would have been that clear. Um, and so, like, I, I just have like a little bit of a hard time saying that that is like proof of of an of an enchantment. Well. And even if it is, I would say it's it's a lingering holdover of the previously enchanted world, rather than I think proof of his actual of his thesis of the disen sorry the misenchanting of the world. Yeah, like you, like the 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 persistence of folk magic, in spite of you know scientific and technological progress and the marketization and commodification of things, to me just shows the tenacity of the human spirit when confronted with the utter inhumanity of capital's drive to strip to disenchant to yeah to disenchant everything what i think is much more useful in proving his point is the the survey of mormonism uh the the sort of survey of like monetary like the kind of magical properties of of money um and Funny enough, I guess it's because it's not mentioned here, but like the whole idea of the invisible hand of the market is like the reason why things happen. It's like it's a it's quite magical thinking, and it is new as as of the the period that is the the, the epoch that is sort of being birthed in the, at this point in history. Right, and assigning a, a logic to the market um, and thinking of the market as an entity that acts of its own volition. Um, necessarily gives to it the um like the same sort of power that a trial by combat would you know god decides how things are going to move god is the one who is behind the invisible hand of the market so if you if you if 
if ventures are met with profitability, that's the, the hand of God uh, moving the market this way or that way. In the same way that if, uh, if, if two people fought each other and one killed the other one, that that's obviously God coming down and on the side of one over the other. So it's, it's the same sort of superstition that was decried as, as a pagan and pre-Christian and, and a part of uh, popery and Catholicism that is actually being used in the justification for you know, the market. So that I think is where there's a much better case that is made for the enchant, the the reenchant or misenchantment of the world. Yeah, yeah um, because that is just that's part of Puritan theology. There, you know. Uh, so actually, I mean that, uh, and this is kind of where I was also going with this question as well. Is like, I don't know if this is too basic or not, but I don't have that clear of an idea of exactly where the lines between enchantment and disenchantment are drawn. Um, and that's kind of one of the problems that I've had through some of this book is something like uh, alchemy. I mean, alchemy and chemistry, I think, especially in the early early stages, are essentially indistinguishable. Uh, but even looking at something like the logic of, or, or I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about today, what would distinguish something like belief in, like, is science and the belief of science and enchantment? Um, is it just when it comes to the market that we would call it a misenchantment? Like, I don't know, I guess I'm just still a little bit unclear of exactly where McCarahare is um, drawing these lines and how you guys understand what the difference between enchantment and something that is not enchanted would be. So when it comes to technology, um, I would say that the enchantment of technology is the idea that, um, that there is something inherently spiritually good about technological progress and that and that technological progress is is evidence of uh, God's will being carried out. That is where I think that science and technology is being enchanted here. And um, wait, what was the other part of your question? What did you say? The uh, is there a difference between enchantment and what? Sorry, I forgot it as I was answering the question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just like, what would if we if we talked about contemporary beliefs, what would uh, enchantment look like when it comes to yeah, I don't know, uh, the market or to science compared to disenchantment? Okay, so I kind of think that, I mean, one one of his principal positions is that there is no, there is no disenchantment. Uh, There's there is dis- no disenchantment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is only a f- a misenchantment, so that like we still are just as enthralled to unverifiable, unquantifiable faiths and beliefs in processes and systems and entities and forces that are beyond our grasp and control, uh, or maybe that can be divined and channeled as any pre-modern, medieval, uh, or even you know pre-class level of society has ever been. It's just that we have a... a the, you know, the enlightenment has given us a language to obscure even our enchantment so that we don't recognize it as such. But I, th- I think that's why it's hard to make a distinction. Mm-hmm. It's because it's not possible because we are, at, you know, because we are still living in an enchanted world. It's just that we're in, mm-hmm. we find the, uh, we find the magic in some of the least interesting and least magical things. Like it's not in the rising and setting of the sun but it's in the uh, ability to for value to beget value or appear to beget value but we're we, we, it's we're not really approaching the world cosmologically any different than anyone else ever has 
if there is no disenchantment and there's only misenchantment, I guess it's like odd that he seems to spend in most chapters a little bit of time talking about how these societies are not disenchanted, that they are enchanted. And he kind of points to things that we would normally think of as like magic um, or superstition instead of just focusing on the fact of like the way that they believe um, is even if it's science or something that we would think of as irrational, um, that this is still a form of enchantment. Does, I don't know if, well, if that makes sense or not. I kind of think that he's, you know, maybe he could spell it out a little better, but I, I sort of took it, uh, the implication to be that the persistence of these kind of primitive superstitions to, to, to use like the parlance of the, of the, person who has a mystical belief in science because it's not like everybody right. is in a laboratory doing science we mm, have a belief right. in science right yeah, yeah, yeah but the persistence of these you know pre-scientific uh views of of humanity and and our our place in the universe is proof in itself that the you know the perpetual march of scientific progress has done nothing to obliterate uh, our enchant our enchanted view of the world that you can have side by side, um, you know, people blasting uh, the Sierra Nevada, whatever, blasting through mountain ranges to lay railroad track, and then also like using a divining rod to to try to find gold, because no matter how far we've advanced, you know, we've landed on the moon, we're talking about going to Mars, whatever, we still have the same that we that we are still just as likely to interpret the world in the way that people who thought the Earth might be flat. Or that diseases might be caused by sin, because there is no disenchanting of the world. Wait, so diseases I, I, are caused by sin? Well, they are. That's, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, but they I, obviously that's, are. So that's that's kind of like to me, it seems like an implication that like just by virtue of just by mentioning that these things still exist, it proves the point in a, in a way that he could spell out a little bit more fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I think that. Um, sort of the mystical belief in pretty much anything a scientist says is uh, pretty obvious. Like there's like, we're not all scientists. We don't have the, the access to lab results and peer reviewed studies that scientists do. So there, there is a certain amount of faith that comes along with accepting what, you know, scientists tell us is true. And we have a faith in the scientific method and we have a faith in peer reviewed journals um, but there also is the uncritical support of pretty much anything any scientist says anytime it pops up on Facebook. Uh, and that's pretty evident now when you get basically religious schools of different, uh, I believe the WHO, well, I believe the CDC, and they're like people yelling at each other about whether or not this study or that study about COVID is the correct one. And that shit happens on my Facebook wall like every day. It's like religious fervor behind different scientific views. It's sort of like, Reminds me of a South Park article. Remember, Jason? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not article, uh, episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to make South Park more ac- academic, where the they, they these two <laughs> future societies go to war over whose science is best. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's important, now that we've made two South Park references, it's important to at least officially distance us from South Park. I haven't watched <laughs> South Park in like 20 years, okay? Yeah. It's not like actually a show. Not actually a show that I enjoy. Um, although... Now that I have said said that, there is a caveat, which is that the the World of Warcraft episode was one of the best things that's ever happened to television. <laughs> but have, otherwise, South Park's I haven't not watched actually, it in years, though. Yeah, yeah, it's probably way worse than I remember it. Yeah. 
So if, if all beliefs are forms of enchantment, like what is, I guess, what is the value of talking, uh, of talking about these things as enchantment? If there's like no, or like, I mean, I, I had a question this was a later question, but I feel like it might be, be good to bring up now. Um, for leftists, like, I feel like there's a lot of value for him to, to talk about this as like, uh, capitalism as like, uh, as like another religion. Cause I feel like part of what he's arguing for as a Christian is probably a return to some more genuine form of Christianity as like a leftist who, or for leftists who aren't Christians, like, what do we think is the value of identifying capitalism as like a different religion? Um, and if we're talking about all things being able to be, or all things are enchantment, I mean, wouldn't um, communism or Marxism be uh, just another also enchantment um, as well? I guess it's just like, it's hard for me to, I think it's a, like a, it's a great history. I find it very fascinating. Um, I'm just curious if there's some degree in which I feel like if you're not a Christian in the way that he is, it, the value of the narrative he's trying to say maybe isn't quite the same. I'll just jump in on this. I think yeah. that so far my reading of the book is like more serving as a corrective than anything else to particular tendencies. You know, I mean, I won't speak necessarily as like a like Catholic or a Christian, but definitely I would say like for, um, you know, a Marxist and someone mm-hmm. on the left. I mean, I think about... I think about discussions I have all the time, and and this is something I'm increasingly like more and more sharp in my criticisms of is the way that I think Marxism's Marxist and leftist perspectives adopt a sort of enchantment of science, like in just okay. the same way that fucking like people who will find a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote on like a Facebook page and then will share that as if it like you know, it's a, it's a valid interpretation of a certain kind of set of experimental results and then like generalize to what the meaning of the universe is based on those results. I think a lot of people on the left enchant science in a similar way. But again, to me, it's that they don't ever recognize that there's a similar functioning of belief and like quote unquote enchantment the way that, that McCary here is describing. And Right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that that's helpful because... I guess part of my question was like, if, if all things are enchantments or misenchantments, if we identify that, mm-hmm. um, like this belief in science is a misenchantment, like what do we see as the enchantment that we're looking for? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that look like? And because it, obviously I think for, for us, um, or I guess as, as maybe non-Christian leftists, I think those, those ideas of like misenchantment would be maybe different for us than it would be for McCare hair. Mm. And like, what does it look like for there to be like a, a good, en- or like a not un- non misenchantment? Like if, I, if science is always going to be missing or like if science is capable of being misenchanted, what does it look like for science to not be misenchanted? I would say that uh, a good non-Christian enchantment would be uh, sort of akin to the, some of the early romantics who um, see in nature just a spiritual quality that exists, even if it isn't necessarily defined as spiritual, where there is just an, uh, it has an untouchable, unassailable beauty that it is just, it, that nature is sacrosanct and should be approached with all the reverence that you would approach a divine object were you a Christian. So, um, like, that, that would be a good enchantment that is a non-Christian enchantment. Um, because uh, we, it, 
being unable to comprehend ecosystems without a heavy scientific background, it would make a lot of sense for you not to go and just dig up this tree in your backyard or whatever, right? It's just on a small personal level. Uh, approaching nature with the reverence that the romantics would have you approach nature with, I think would be a very good secular enchantment. I also think too, um, I'm going to give a shout out to the socialism and ecology series that they're doing a cosmonaut right now. And the work I'm doing on reading like Kohei Saito and things like that is I, I do think there is a, in it, there is a tendency in this sort of more, let's say, quote unquote, like scientific materialist approach to like anti-capitalist politics, regardless of whatever strain that happens to be, is one of the assumptions that you make more often than not is you have you have sort of enchanted that that methodology in a similar way to the exact type of capitalist sort of tendencies that McCare is, is after, which is basically to see that the world is kind of this like um, like waiting reserve of materials for you to use in the processes of production. And I think that one of the things I would wonder about is that if you were to have this sort of like non-Christian, like leftist kind of enchanted view of the world, would it necessarily be like very ecologically and environmentally focused? Like, yeah. and... I mean, my, my assumption was, would be that it would have to be, because if it's not that, then the world is still just almost like what Heidegger would say, like, there's like, they're just like resources, like waiting to be used by humanity. And if they're not being used by humanity, it's like, we don't really give a shit about them. You know, I'm not a Heidegger supporter just to say that, but I do think that there is a way that like that critique is about what is it that science does to the way we see the world. And it sees everything as resources waiting to be used and turned into commodities or something else that's useful to humanity. And I say, like, fuck that. Like, we need to have less things that are useful to humanity. I mean, that's, like, maybe part of what I would see about an enchanted, like, leftist, you know, again, I mean, to me, it's, like, just, like, hardcore, like, radical, like, eco-communist politics, but... Smashing Cartesian dualism. Um, And, I don't know. So, like, to me, I don't know. I've, I've got a a view of, I think, animal life that most leftists probably aren't going to share that I think that it's not really ours for making use of. And I would think that a, a an enchantment, a, a good enchantment would be one that got, gets rid of factory farming because of how wasteless, wasteful and destructive it is and, how, and brutalizing it is to animal life. I don't think that it's necessary for us to do that sort of thing. A good enchantment would be one that sees animal life as being worth something and not just commodities to be just thrown into the capitalist profit machine and uh and and of course what adam said so is are we contrasting like enchantment with uh like is enchantment just in in a sense like a like an emotional like buy-in to a belief or something like that like i mean i feel like you could you could have some sort of um belief in the negative effects of the, the meat industry or something like that. Mm. Uh, but I don't, you know, I think that that would be different from, from looking at, you know, animal life as being enchanted or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah. guess like when you guys are talking about viewing that as being enchanted, um, or Chris, when you're talking about it, like viewing nature as being enchanted, how, how would you, how do you mean that as di- distinct from just like a belief in, uh, in the divine nature of it or in the spiritual nature of it? Um, I don't know. Or, that or, I would. or don't you? Okay. You mean the same thing? Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that like part of the way that I understand the concept of enchantment is a willingness 
to be enchanted. Right. It's like not I'm not just, an atheist and I'm not interested in trying to find a secular reason to enchant things, you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like um, it's I think the reverence for nature and the intangible qualities of the whole of the universe of which humanity is a part as occupying a specific spot. And, uh, you know, that 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 reverence for for that intangible uh, quality can, you know, that can that can apply here when you're talking about the way that human beings relate to, you know, other species or the natural world or space or whatever it is. And that there is in both directions a sort of a, a there there is an intentionality to it. So you can either intentionally try to disenchant these things and you know, like pigs are for chopping up and turning into sausages and asteroids are for mining and uh you know, fields are for being plowed and mountaintops are for removal and so on. Or you can intent you know, and that's a th- that's a thing that I think a person has to like continually reassert both at the individual and the level of like a society overall. That that is a that is a there's a willingness to tr- to disenchant these things because there's a because that's the function of ideology right is to help manifest to, to help uh I guess I guess to, to help guide the way in which a person acts upon the world and similarly when we're talking about you know a willingness to be enchanted is there's there's it's a leap of faith that I think uh, I think it makes people really uncomfortable uh, to think of what they're doing as being intentionally having a faith. But I don't think there's a way to get around it. And I think that that's maybe the the unspoken thesis of this book is that whether you're trying to disenchant the world or you're allowing yourself to be enchanted by the world, in both cases, it is something that you're trying to do and that you have to continually uh, reassert on a higher and higher level in order to sustain it. Hmm. All right. So, yeah, I didn't mean to be difficult with all those questions. I just, yeah. I was no, no, that's, to, uh, this is a good discussion. Think, um, yeah, I mean, cause I, I feel like I, I get the impression that yeah, I understood. I think enchantment in a in a different way than y'all, which I think is maybe part of the how did the you understand and it? stuff. Um, I guess I would have understood it as like being a. If you look at an enchanted world, it would be one that's full of forces that you can't predict that sort of have their own um, their own wills um, or mm. their their own um, desires. And so, like you know, when I look at the disenchantment of nature, even if I value it, even if I put a place a um you know some sort of divineness to it um and try to respect it that my interactions with it would still be very different from someone in the medieval period that would would sort of see it as like a realm that is that like can't be predicted necessarily um that is full of um spiritual powers and forces that you know have that are imbued with some some form of yeah like will or goal or desire or something like that that is distinct from from humans. I mean, one thing I was going to mention as well is that whenever I think about like defining enchantment versus disenchantment, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe one way I see like quote unquote disenchantment being defined, you know, conscious like mm-hmm. you know overtly or or more um, like covertly is almost this idea that. Everything can be understood through strictly material processes and composition. Right. So, you know, and and again, I'm just going to distinguish this from like someone talking about like the material forces of history and like Mm -hmm. that, how things have to be understood versus this like ideological, like idealist sort of perspective, but that you can understand everything as if this is just like raw material Mm -hmm. um, versus that there might be some... and question would be like how do you understand what the other thing is but is there something else that 
is operating within the material or alongside or however you want to define that, that somehow, you know, you can't collapse everything to just like a raw, like scientific material explanation of why these things exist or how they mm-hmm. function. Um, I was actually curious to ask you, I mean, do you think there's a, there's a relevance to talking about like what's enchanted versus disenchanted in the, in the framework of what is sacred versus profane? Because I was wondering about that too. It's like whenever I think about mm-hmm. things that are enchanted, like if we talk about nature in this way, I mean, I think I'm pretty clearly thinking of it as, well, those are things that are sacred mm. and and like outside the realm of like humanity and like the realm of the profane. So I, that might be another way to think about it. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, um, there might be, let's say that there are obviously profound differences in the way that are, a modern reverence for the natural world would uh, between. Sorry, let me say that again. There are obviously profound differences between a modern reverence for the natural world and a pre-modern reverence for the natural world. But I would say that more importantly, uh, the the similarities are uh, should be pretty should be foregrounded because whether you think of nature as being pure chaos and unmanageable uh, or not, the the result of trying to dominate nature is still chaos and and it's still unmanageable so like we understand all sorts of things about um ecosystems and yet our fierce determination to subordinate nature to our will as a species has set us on the course for the potential extinction of life on the planet or at least of our capacity to sustain civilization so yeah we might differ in a lot of ways but ultimately that like profound reverence for the untamable qualities of the natural world is still vital to our survival. And I think too, just for what it's worth, I think if we come back to the initial setting up and in the introduction in part one, I mean, I think McCarrie Harris whole book is a sort of critique of ideology in a way of the desacralization thesis that like Max Weber developed in Protestant mm-hmm. ethic and spirit of capitalism. So I guess, I mean, to me, for what it's worth, it's like even if we don't have clear definitions of that distinction or what's enchanted versus disenchanted, mm-hmm. and maybe kind of like what Jason was saying, for me, I think it's maybe the whole like driving point of the book is to like undermine anyone who has any, you know, implicit or explicit belief that there are these two different things. Like, you know, the the pre-moderns were enchanted, we're not enchanted, and that's the distinction. And just to, like, undermine or attempt to undermine anyone's ability to try to hold that ideology. Because I guess he sees that it's almost like capital's power is increased by that being obscured from us. Yeah. Yeah, right, I, I guess... And, oh, go ahead. I was, gonna, yeah, I was just going to say... Uh, it implies that capitalism is free of mystical superstition and mm-hmm. instead of impregnated with it. Yeah, I mean when I when I had read at least the the part of the book that I've read so far, I guess when I when I approached it I'd under cuz like when I was a Christian um way back in the day, there was like a realization that I came to that my way of understanding, and I think it, I don't want to, wouldn't have used the term of disenchanted, but I realized it was like a very different way that the older forms of Christianity believed, right? Like my form was a very of like a mechanistic universe presided over by a divine spirit um, that kind of created it all. And I realized that that was like vastly different from an earlier Christianity that saw spirits um, and powers as being like 
all over the place, um, and it's like a world that you constantly interact with those things. Um, I thought, at least maybe I was bringing a little bit too much of my own experience to that. I thought McCarrier's point was not necessarily that we could, you know, find some sort of reenchantment, but just that we have a reenchantment. It's just capitalism. Um, yeah. And that, you know, I, I guess I, I still wasn't entirely certain if McCarrier was trying to say that we could, in a sense, reenchant like mm-hmm. our own, our own, you know, like our own worldview of of the of nature or something like that. Doesn't he specifically say that uh, any any attempted reenchantment has just been a massive failure? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I think he called it a sort of like individualistic, uh, sort of like nihilist therapeutic technology to try to somehow like make you feel better about the world, mm-hmm. but it's always going. Yeah. To fail. Yeah. That's what he said. Mm-hmm, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was re- specifically referring to New Age, um, right? Uh, enchantment. Well, in terms so. of if he's going to eventually advocate for some sort of reenchantment of the world in a different way, we have another eight hundred pages. Yeah, he's, got a, he's, got to he's got a long time. He's got a long time to do it. <laughs> so, um, I do. How are you doing on time? I don't uh, know. We're I, like way over two hours. Shit. Okay. Yeah, we we're like three hours now. But if yeah, you've but, got good shit, man, let's go. Yeah. Um, I'll skip, I'll skip one of them. I did want to hit on this one a little bit, and you guys can we can maybe save it for another time. But I'll just say it. Um, so McCarrie Hare, I, I don't know. I was having a hard time uh, maybe interpreting some of his intention here, but he seems to want to champion the religion of the enslaved over the uh, over the Puritans, the Evangelicals, and Transcendence. Um, but uh, as he sh- he kind of shows that uh, all of those are enchanted to a certain degree. And all are materialistic in the sense that they have a strong connection between the spiritual and the material. It seems to be just a question of which narrative defines them, uh, the Canaanite genocide or the, or the Egyptian exodus. If that's the case, because it seems to, like he almost seemed to in some ways condemn the, the strong connection between the material and the spiritual for, the, um, for like the Mormons, for, say, you know, for example, but then wants to say that the um, slaves had a had a, like a very similar hmm. like didn't didn't necessarily separate the material from the spiritual. They saw their you know um, religion as as one that encourages both a, a spiritual freedom, but also like a very physical type of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's the case, does it like is then like in, enchantment or disen- or misenchantment? Um, like, does this kind of the the right way of, of talking about the problems between these, or is it more of just like, in a sense they, they both have similar uh, f- a structure to their beliefs. It's just a matter of which narrative they, they ascribe to. And I, I guess I felt like the, the purpose of the book here was like a little bit because he seems to be kind of wanting to do two things. He wants to talk, he wants to use it as like a refutation of Weber, um, but also as like a bit of a condemnation of the American religious tradition. Um, but in this case, I don't really feel like that they go together that well because it's not that clear of what this analysis of disenchantment is doing for the difference between these two forms of uh, religious understanding or religious tradition. I guess my thought about that, because I was thinking of this in one of your earlier questions, is almost my read would be, how in some ways these types of belief or the ways that people believe or how they engage with this sort of dichotomy 
is very, very strongly a question about what material interests are they serving? Mm -hmm. Like what material forms of of social arrangement are they valorizing versus resisting? And so I almost kind of read the connection between how the Mormons talked about material and spiritual versus like Nat Turner as really a question of looking at like what do the larger political and like material conditions do to these particular ways of believing? And so, I mean, I don't know if I want to say that there's a bit of like a kind of like history from underground or like people's history of this Mm. in some way, but I can't help but feel that way. Like reading it to be like, wow, like there's all these like narratives that were happening that were never really, you know, that I never really encountered even in the things that I read. Yeah. I guess it was a question of how does this like, Putting it in this narrative of misenchantment uh, doesn't really seem like it helps to explain why one is, you know, uh, one is despicable and the other mm. one is like is good. Like, I mean, is he is he is he not wanting to do that? And I'm just kind of misreading him here, or and is he just kind of trying to explain these different currents that all kind of feed into this story of misenchantment that he wants to tell? Um, because it seemed, I, I guess, I was just surprised that he didn't. He doesn't really seem to address it at all. That actually both of these strains, both the very positive and the very negative ones, um, seem to have a really strong connection between the material and the spiritual. He, he kind of wants to highlight it, but never actually you know, talks about the fact that they both have them. I think that he, he um, whenever he's talking about good enchantment, right, in the, in the first chapters of the book, he mentions how that type of enchantment was used for both good and ill hmm, uh, okay. and, and, and ignored when mm-hmm. it was convenient for the church to do so in the pre-Reformation uh, period. Mm-hmm. And then I think that he similarly, whenever he talks about uh, pecuniary enchantment, uh, mentions that there is this sort of covenantial agreement where we're going to use the, use the wealth created by this type of enchantment for the betterment of all that is sort of shunted aside uh, in favor of the more nakedly ambitious and uh, accumulative kind of theology. So I think that he, he shows that what, what I think is that his value judgment lies in the potential and that there is more of a potential for the more of a potential for liberation in the type of enchantment that he calls good enchantment and more of a potential for domination and environmental destruction and reckless accumulation in the pecuniary enchantment. And I don't think he outright says that he doesn't outright make that condemnation so much as he just sort of hints at it. He might get to that later on in the book, but mm-hmm, right. you know, I think that he definitely, like like Adam said, said uh, shows that the material gain that can be had uh, is definitely a huge influence on on how the theologies are used. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like if you are a slaveholder, you can justify your position. You can find biblical verses which help explain the what you deem to be the natural order because you are on top. And similarly, if you're a slave, you can find in scriptures uh, an, an injunction to rebel. Uh, and in both cases, it's the it's ideology uh, made into material force through uh, right. the way in which people understand a lack of division between the spiritual and the material. He sounds a lot less Marxist in these chapters than he did in the earlier chapters, I think. I think that he makes it more explicit that he's coming 
that he's actually viewing this through a materialist lens as he's talking about enchantment, you know? I would agree with that, too. I think reading the introduction in part one, I came away just being like, this is a complete, like, firebrand, like, radical leftist take on this. Mm -hmm. I I guess my take wasn't so much like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a clearly objective, like, history just laying out. It's like, no, this is obviously someone who's, like, very left is very anti-capitalist who is writing in a like in a very polemical like rhetorical way so but i do think that came out a lot more in part one than this so yeah i mean i guess it was just a a question of like when i was reading it and for example mormonism like and he kind of wants to say like part of the problem is is this this really close conflation of the material and the spiritual when it almost would seem like from his position maybe he should have just said uh actually they just you know were in a position of power and therefore we're like inherently going to misuse it you know like it I don't know. Like it seemed like he kind of wanted to put part of the the rationale or the blame on the beliefs. Um, when actually, I don't know. I feel like from from his position, maybe or maybe from our position, it would just be about you know what what class and what social function these people find themselves in. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's an ambiguity there that is is maybe not conscious, but maybe is conscious because there are also um, and you know it's not dealt with again in the in the chapter that we just went through it's another one of those um interesting omissions like we don't hear about the role of the quakers and shakers and congregationalists in the anti-slavery movement and their Mm -hmm. explicit denunciation of the evils of slavery on you know purely religious terms and that like john brown just like nat turner john brown sees himself as a crusading figure uh as like the the hammer of God being brought down upon the iniquities of the of the world, even though John Brown is not a person who, in his immediate uh, relationship to the natural to the material world, uh, needs to be emancipated from slavery. Mm-hmm. So it's not just like material interests can find uh, a sort of spiritual expression in order to like justify and help clarify what those material interests are, like in the case of Nat Turner or in Nat Turner's uh, slave master. In the case of John Brown, it's just, I am compelled by righteousness to go out into the world and manifest God's will. Uh, so I just think it's much more complicated. And it's a, it's a, so again, I don't know if that omission is intentional and if that amb- ambiguity is intentional, but I would say it would make sense if it were intentional because I think that we could walk ourselves into a blind alley uh, or, or we could, we could diminish our capacity to assess if we had concluded in all of this that it was just a matter of material interests and ideological justification, you know, ex post facto or whatever. We could say it's much more interesting and complex than that, comrades. <laughs> <laughs> we could, we could say that. No, I do think that's interesting though, because I, I could imagine that if you you could write this book in a very different way and mm-hmm. talk about let's look at the historical variations in ways that christian belief or whatever it was is used in all these different capacities or the variations and you know myriad forms it takes but to me it's almost like i wonder if like a lot of those omissions are from him delimiting his project in a very particular mm-hmm. way and it's almost like he could probably write about a lot of that stuff but again it would be a 3000 page book instead yeah. of a 1000 page book and I, I to me I think the symptomatic read is like I do wonder if it's just something that is just he's trying to cleave very closely to like what is my very specific like thesis of this book and what am I pushing against and you know and I think it's it's kind of you know he still writes a thousand pages about it but shit he has to leave out so many nuances that yeah. you know maybe we're kind of picking up on 
Yeah. Right. Well, like for you know, if the if the point is just to make the a particular case against capitalist rationalism as disen, uh, disenchanting the world, then you could leave out Nat Turner and you could leave out you could leave out everything that let's call the positive enchantments in every chapter we've read, and you could make the point very explicitly. But then I think that there is a a very understandable tendency in writing a historical survey of anything to. Well, especially in this case, to like not be just writing a book about uh, how religion is used to oppress, which I think is the way you could read it if some of these other examples weren't there. Even though the existence or the the presence of those examples serve to somewhat uh, dilute the overall point, like it's necessary to be there, but it also it almost demands that more material is there because more material is there. It's like think- with the eating comes the appetite. I will say this too. I just looked at the the flap, the the cover flap on this, and just to kind of drive home exactly what is the point, he says, if socialists and Wall Street bankers can agree on anything, it is the extreme rationalism of capital. And so maybe in in some way, to me, that's that's a pretty clear, just short, succinct statement of like, oh yeah, this is what he's trying to do. He's mm-hmm. really trying to like undermine a very core shared belief among what would seem to be two, you know, absolutely dichotomously opposed ways of seeing the world. (laughs) 